I've shared several times, I know that I've, I grew up in Chicago, uh, not uh, 63rd and Cicero, right, right downtown. I mean, not the high rise, uh, not the loop area, but just outside Midway Airport, right across the street. We'd be having supper and the planes would come in and it was busier than O'Hare at that point. You couldn't um, you just shut up was the whole house rattled. <laughs> And it was really a bummer during a great television show if a plane was coming in. You just so well, you missed the part. But, but just a couple of blocks away was this immense toy store. It was an old dilapidated building, but, but Bargain Town was the name of the place. And so when we would uh, you know, bring back some, some soda bottles, I know younger guys don't know what I'm talking about. When you bring back the soda bottles to the grocery store and you get some money, we would run to Bargain Town to see what kind of a bargain we could get. I remember when... Uh, at one point, they were passing out little cards, and they said, Bargain Town is expanding. Help us name our store. We were to check the things. Bargain Town, Jeffrey Giraffe, or Toys R Us. Well, we never referred to Bargain Town as Toys R Us or Jeffrey Giraffe, but it was novel, so we were checking those things all over the place and stuffing the ballot box. So if you want to know who named the Toys R Us chain, I was a part of that, just so you know. I was a part of that. And Bargain Town did have some incredible bargains. Um, but nobody, none of my friends could find the bargains that Dennis Abercrombie found. I mean, Dennis had a kind of a sixth sense. And he would go and he'd come back with this great G.I. Joe's thing or this, this sizzler Hot Wheel deal. And we'd look at this thing and we'd go, man, Dennis, how much did this thing cost? And he'd flip it over and he'd show us the price tag. And the price tag was, you know, ten bucks. We're thinking, what a deal. So I'd go to the store and it was always 15 or 20 bucks when I would find him. I thought, oh, man, he's, this guy is an incredible shopper. And he, he, Dennis had a way of coming back with all kinds of bargains from Bargain Town. Until the day we heard that Dennis was arrested in Bargain Town. The police ushered him out, put him in the back of a cruiser. Uh, now, let me share with, with you guys, if you if you're, haven't been born, if you were born within the last uh, 15 years, you might not know what I'm talking about, but previous there was no such thing as those scanner things and the UPC deals that you'd find. You know, the grocery clerk just scans it by the scanner and it tells you the product information, the price. That, that wasn't going on back then. Every item in the store had a little price tag, how much it cost. And what Dennis would do is he would go find a sizzler system that he really liked, but it cost $15. And he only had five. So he'd pull the little sticker off, $15, and he'd walk through the store till he found something that was marked $5. And he'd pull that little sticker off, and he'd replace it, and he'd come back, and he got all kinds of great loot this way until he got caught. Now, it seems to me, well, can you imagine if you walked into a major department store, and that, the night before, some people came in, and they switched all the price tags around. And a garden hose was $900, but a 50-inch plasma screen TV was $12.95. You know, you'd be going, if you knew the value of stuff, you would be going, I like this. You can get some great deals. But if you didn't know the value of stuff, you just might be spending an inordinate amount of money for something that's worthless. On the other hand, you might be, you might be passing something that's of great value, but it's got such a cheap price on it. You're saying this thing has to be junk. And you would end up with all kinds of wrong things, spending wrong amounts on, on wrong things in, 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 Here's the application for us. It's as if in the world we live, while we were sleeping, a celestial Dennis Abercrombie went through and changed the price tags on everything, on values, on relationships, on stuff, on on position, on work, just changed the price tags. And you and I are going through life. 
And we have life is decisions. And what decisions are, are buying the things in life. But if we're not careful, if we don't understand what the real value is, and we buy things according to what the world has told us their worth is, we are spending an inordinate amount of resources, maybe our whole life, on something that's worthless. And meanwhile, things that really count, the culture has told us they're worth little. And so we go buy it. And we just pass it. I think that that whole idea is really what is behind the 10th commandment. We're coming to the 10th commandment today in our series on the 10 commandments. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. We talked and we said the 10 commandments are found in two places in your Bible. They're found in Exodus 20, just when the guys got out of Egypt, getting ready to go in the promised land. And then remember, they got kind of stuck and they ended up in the a desert for 40 years before they finally got in. Then Moses reminds them just before they go in in Deuteronomy 5. But the first time we see the commands, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And the 10th commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, a couple observations. First of all, covet. It's not a word we would use very often, uh, but the word means an inordinate passion or desire, a thirst. Something that, that is so great, though, that it consumes. It's an obsession. It consumes everything about you. And we see, just like we noticed even last week, that in this Tenth command, you notice there is a direct object here, right? Sixth command, there is no direct object. Just don't murder, period. It's not giving you any exceptions there. And no adultery, period. And no theft. It doesn't say when you can and when it's okay and really who you shouldn't from. Just no theft, period. But here, he doesn't say no coveting, period. He, he has a direct object. And that gives us the, the, the key to this whole command. And notice what the direct object is. It's your, your neighbor's house. It's his relationships. It's his opportunities. It's his wealth. It's his prestige. It is everything that does not belong to you, but belongs to him. Now, now it's, it's, I know some folk would say, well, I'm okay. See, I've never, never coveted my neighbor's ox here. I'm, I'm all right. Now, his jaguar, right? yeah, but not his ox. I'm okay with that. I haven't done that. But now, keep in mind, these folk, remember, we're trying to look at their world first, how it relates to them before we get into our world. And these folk did not have the Internet. So you couldn't cruise and surf the net and find all kinds of cool stuff. They didn't get a Sears wish book. They didn't have the flyers coming from Walmart. They didn't go to the mall. They couldn't come across chariot dealerships. They're in the desert, for crying out loud. So if you're going to covet, the only way you're going to be able to covet is something that belongs to your neighbor. That's where that was at. Now, now understanding, too, what covetousness is not is key here, because sometimes we get this mixed up. Covetousness is not an admiration or recognition. Uh, a realization. If I if I just notice that this gal is pretty, that's not that's not covetousness. If I notice this guy's got a great physique, now I, I might take that a next step, but that's not covetousness. Uh, if in fact I notice that this singer has got an incredible voice, uh, that's not covetousness. If I notice that this athlete is just what he can do with the ball, you know, it's almost like magic. 
That's not covetousness. If I notice that my neighbor's got a great car or that my brother-in-law has got a view from his house that you wouldn't believe or, or my sister has incredibly high quality things in her house, that is not covetousness. Covetousness is when we take it another step. And it's interesting, when you look at, at the, the word that's translated as covetousness, it's also translated as, as lust. But, but the word just means, it means to find pleasing, to desire. Now, understanding that that's the etymology of the word, that's what it means. Is it wrong to always covet? The answer is no. What makes coveting sin is its direct object. Is it wrong to covet a relationship, to find pleasing, to long for a deeper relationship with God? Isn't that not what the psalmist is doing when he says, my soul thirsts for you? My body longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water? That's what he's doing. Is it wrong to deeply desire to be a man of prayer? Or deeply desire and pursue after a godly character? That which makes coveting wrong is its, is its direct object. And quite often the word is used in a negative uh, connotation. No, no question about it. This is how we can understand it, though. It's helpful for me. If you draw a circle around you and all your stuff. Now, when you're living in your circle with you and all your stuff, sometimes we look outside the circle. And that's okay. You know, advertisers make sure we do that. And, and so we look outside our circle. But when you deeply desire that stuff outside your circle to be in the circle... Now we've violated. Now we've gone into covetousness. And right here, keeping in mind who these guys are that that God's talking to originally. Where where these guys just came out of. They came out of Egypt. And what was the last thing they did on their way out of Egypt? Scripture says they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, God made the Egyptians favorably disposed because he knew his people are going to need pots and pans and tools and garden hoses and and, uh, swords and clothes. And they're going to need this stuff. They're slaves. They didn't have any of it. So where did they get it? Well, on their way out of Egypt. They'd say, Mistress, that's a nice bowl you got there. Can I take that with me? And she would say, Yes, and here's some china too. And so you could take off all of that stuff. And the other guy would say, Master, I noticed you got an extra pair of sandals. Listen, can I, can I take those with me? And say, absolutely, you can. And here's an extra cloak for you as well. And so all the people were plundering. They, they, had all, they left with, with their arms full uh, out of Egypt. Now, I'm out there and I've got my robes and my sandals that my, my master gave me. But he didn't give me an iPod. And this guy over here has got an iPod. I'm going, man, I, I like my stuff and all. But I really need one of those. I don't know what I do. I don't know what these guys would do with an iPod. I don't know, but but I really need one of those, and I'm not going to trade, but I want it. I really want that into my into my life. Now, we might say, you know, I don't covet my neighbor's stuff. You know, I live in a bad neighborhood. My neighbors don't have anything of any value. I really don't covet their stuff, so I'm okay with this one. See, when I want to covet, I go to the temple of covetousness. I go to the mall, right? Because the mall is a great place if you want to covet, isn't it? Because you have got people who've been paid an awful lot of money. I think they get paid too much. I'm not sure, though. Uh, who have designed these windows in, in such a way that would cause you and I to covet. That's their goal. So when we're walking down, looking at the windows, the windows are calling out, come and covet. You know, they're, they're saying, they're saying you, you, this is not in your circle. But it can be in your circle if you've got a credit card. You know, and so you're looking through, and that's a nice one, but that's, a, that's a nice. And you're walking through, and it's almost a pastime, isn't it? 
Let's go to the mall and just see what we can covet. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an American thing today, isn't it? Stimulus checks. Come on, as an American, you need to get out there and spend. Come on, what's the problem? It's an American thing that we need to be doing. We need to be coveting. And I, I, I think it's almost, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble, um, y'all, I'll tell you from the first hour. And so I'm going to put a caveat on this one. Uh, what about Bob? Don't raise your hands. Uh, I, I, I love that movie, but I, I, I shared last hour that it's a real good movie. My daughter came up to me afterwards and she said, Dad, there's lots of swearing in that movie. I said, oh, no, no, no. So don't go see that movie. But at one point, Bob, if, if, if you did see it, you remember this, Bob chases down his psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin, and he gets, he gets to their, the vacation town. He calls up Dr. Marvin. He says, Dr. Marvin, I've got to talk to you. And Dr. Marvin's saying, Bob, go back home. I'll talk to you when I get home. I'm on vacation. And Bob has a breakdown. He says, oh, Dr. Marvin, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And I wonder if God is telling us, listen, don't worry about it. And you and I break down. We say, no, no, God, I need, I need, I need, I need that, that new job. And I need that, that new raise. And I need that relationship. You don't understand, God, I need that girl. And I need one of those. And I got to have one of those. And where it gets down to is, is this. Coveting, and this is, I think, why, one of the reasons why God tells us this is be, because he's put in my heart and your heart a deep desire, a, a, a thirst. And the goal of the thirst is to cause us to chase after him. But we end up diverting the, ch- the chase, the, the desire he's given us. We've all got it. And we all chase after different things. And God's goal with that thirst is that we chase after him. But it's like we've got that Cinderella slipper in our heart. And we go through the world and all the stuff that the culture has put a big price tag on. And we try to see if that's going to fit the Cinderella slipper. And then it doesn't. So we go try the next thing and then the next thing. And God all the, all the time is saying that thirst that, that, that you have in your heart. I've given it to you that you might thirst after me, that you might pursue me. Now, can you imagine the, the, these Israelites? They, they, they're, they're going out, they've all got neat stuff, but they don't have the exact same stuff, so they begin to covet what each other has. Let me ask you this, is it possible to love somebody that you're coveting their things? Twin cousins to covetousness, jealousy is the first one. What jealousy says is jealousy says, I should have that thing that you have. And maybe I don't deserve it, but you know what? You don't deserve it either. So jealousy is saying, I hope you lose it. Uh, an example, you're in school, back in high school. Remember this? The uh, Mr. Popularity, he was the jock. All the girls loved him. He was so, so cocky and set on himself, and everyone thought he was the greatest thing. Well, if he was to trip in front of all the cheerleaders and spill yogurt on himself, <laughs> what would you do? You'd love it, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, yes. All right, that's good. Or the person that beat you out for the team. Took your position. You should be playing that spot. But the coach says, no, this other person's better. And then they drop the ball in the game. (laughs) That's a good thing, isn't it? Or someone comes in and they've got their new car. And they come in, they're upset because someone keyed their car. You know, inside you're going, oh, that's so sad. And the second thing you're saying is right is I better go clean my keys right, so I don't get caught on this one. It's, it's that understanding that, that they shouldn't have it. I'm not saying I need it. I'm just saying they shouldn't have it. Now, is it possible to love somebody 
that you're jealous of. Where jealousy is, there is no love. The most important command, love God, love others. If jealousy's there, forget it. Everything stops right there. It's not going any further. Second of the cousins is, is envy. And envy basically is saying, you know, if you've got the 500 DX in your circle, I need the 650 DX in mine. You know, you've got the premium package that's wonderful. I need the limited package in mine. You know, it's, 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 I've just got to get a little bit more because somehow we've got that Bob complex. I need to have a little bit more than what you do because then I'm more important than you are. Again, you can imagine where the community, where the relationships are going to go and, and how effective the Israelites are going to be on the mission that God has sent them into the world to do, to bear witness of himself. He said, as surely as I live, the whole world will be filled with my glory. That's been his goal. And if they're turning on each other and focusing on their stuff and arguing and bittering, uh, being bitter at each other, it's not going anywhere. And so God says, I know, I know the desire I put in your heart. And I know your propensity to focus on other things that I didn't put inside your circle. But you've got to realize that desire is from me. And what, what we want to do for the next just couple minutes is we want to look at a case study where covetousness has gone awry. And maybe we can see ourselves. So if you've got your Bibles, Joshua chapter 6. You know the story, common story. Joshua chapter 6. And they, they uh, came to Kadesh Barnea, the gateland to the promised land. You know, it's like the, 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 the St. Louis Arch. It's the entryway to the west. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. And they sent spies in there. And ten of them said, we better not do it. And two of them said yes. And so they were a democracy somehow. And so they decided to not. They ended up in the desert for 40 years, wandering around. They just are back at the gate. They're getting ready to go in. They cross the Jordan. They're taking the promised land now with Joshua at the helm. And the very first town they've got to take out is Jericho. Jericho will be the Chicago, New York, Los Angeles of the, the, the Holy Land. It is big. It is mean. It is impressive. And they're walking around with their garden hose and stuff thinking, how in the world are we going to take out Jericho? Well, you know this the story. But one of the things that God does before they get into conflict with Jericho is he sets down some rules here. And in chapter 6, verse 17... It says, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, what God is doing here is a principle that he pointed out just a while back. And that's the principle of first fruits. And what he's saying, what he would say with the idea of first fruits is when you come to harvest your crops, you, you, you need to know that that, that that first group that you harvest, those first ripe tomatoes, the first those I want you to give to me. Now, God's not hungry. He doesn't need them. 
And the Israelite, you can imagine, they're handing this stuff over to God and they don't know if, if hail may come tomorrow and wipe out the rest of the crops. They may have absolutely nothing else. But it's a, you can see why God is, is asking for the first fruit. So it's a, it's a sign of saying, I trust you, Lord. It's a sign of saying, I recognize that everything I have is from you. And by the way, side point, usually what we do is just opposite, isn't it? We go through, we pay all of our stuff, and there's any money left over, ah, we'll give some of it to God. But, but, but that's not his plan. And what he says here is all the other cities, and it's what he's going to do, all the other cities, you can take all the stuff you want to take. But this one, this first one, everything in it is sacred to me. Don't touch it. Well, you know what happens, right? Chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Notice, I love this. It says the Israelites acted unfaithfully. Actually, it was just one guy. There's a corporate solidarity here. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Uh, No one else knew about this, but Achan, I'm guessing Achan and his family. But no one else knew about this. Well, the next battle they had a fight was Ai, right? Now, if Jericho is the Chicago, Ai is like the McCain. And they're thinking, we just whomped on, we just whomped on Chicago. These guys, we're going to take these guys out. We'd, Joshua, you tell the army they got a day off. We're just going to take a handful. We're going to go clean these guys up. We'll be right back. And so they go into battle with the, with the men from Ai. But what happens? The guys from Ai come out and rout them, kill 36 of the Israeli warriors. And they come back into to camp with their tail between their legs, crying, we, we've lost. And Joshua's, how could we lose? We just whomped on these guys. How could we? What happened? And so Joshua's on his face, praying, saying, God, what's going on? And God taps him on the shoulder and basically says, Joshua, quit praying. You know, there's a time not to pray. God says, quit praying, Joshua, because there's sin in the camp. If there's sin in the camp, you can pray all you want. That's just not going to do anything. Unless you're willing to deal with the sin, that relationship is, is shut down. So he says, you've got to deal with it, Joshua. So they go through their, their lots system and they find out that, that Achan is the man. And so they call him on it. And we're chapter 7, verse 20. Achan replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, keep in mind that it's not wrong to see and admire and and respect and that kind of thing. And so if Achan would have just looked in, he saw the the Babylonian robe, he might have check out the robe. I mean, the rest of two million of us in brown burlap. But look at this thing and look at that material. Oh, how soft and the colors. Wouldn't Mabel just be amazed if I was wearing one of these things? I could see myself by the fire in the lazy boy with a cup of coffee wearing that robe. The tag says it's my size. I think I'll try it on. You see where this thing just starts rolling. And just the, the admiration of this thing wasn't the issue. But suddenly he pours gasoline on the fire of desire to acquire, doesn't he? And, and before you know it, he's taken. Now he sees the wedge of gold. It's not wrong for him to say, is that what I think it is? 
I didn't know they, they casted gold in such huge amounts. That's a king's ransom. If he would have stopped there, it would have been fine. But then he took it one step further, didn't he? What I could do with that gold. I bet I could give a lot of money to Compassion International. I could feed the poor with that. And along the way, you know, I need a new camel. I mean, mine's just getting a little wore out. She's kind of old. But I bet I could get a sharp one. And, of course, new sandals to go with the robe. And, and Mabel wanted that, that, that living room suit. I bet I could tell. Oh, you know, this would be a wonderful thing. And before you know it, he's thinking this is an answer to prayer. This is it. Love is God. Thank you so much. And this is a real parenthetical point. But I've got to mention this because this comes up on a, on a regular basis. Regardless of what I sense to be or feel to be an answer to prayer or from God, if it contradicts his word, it's from hell. You know what I'm saying? This is important because my good friend told me and I'm thinking and I prayed about it and I just sense and I feel and maybe I had a vision. But if it contradicts the written word of God, it's from hell. It's not from God. God doesn't tell us to do anything that is against his word. Very important. Because regardless of what was going through Achan's mind or not, there was going to be some substantial consequences. Verse 22. And I don't have this on, on the screen, I don't believe. But verse 22. So J- Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them over Achan. They heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. That's a hard passage, isn't it? It's like, it's a bit severe, isn't it? I mean, is it really wrong? Is it really wrong to want something for yourself? Is that really that bad? And what about the kids? They didn't do anything. And now here they are getting killed. It's a hard passage. And just remind you of the context, though, something we mentioned earlier. Because they can send 36 Israeli warriors, 36 sons of somebody were killed. 36 women were told your husbands aren't coming back. Somewhere between one and 200 children were told you will never have a daddy again because Achan sinned. You know, sometimes we look at this one in the, the list of the ten and we think, well, you know, God ran out of good things and so he's just kind of inventing stuff and so it's not that big of a deal. Just coveting's not that big of a thing. But coveting will destroy Whenever you and I take the passion that God has put in our hearts to chase after him and instead we chase after stuff, we destroy ourselves and we destroy our families. Children, when their parents are committed to coveting or breaking this one on a regular basis, the children are discipled in idolatry. They grow up, you know, they grow up realizing is the most important thing in life is to get ahead. The most important thing in life is to acquire for myself this, that, that, the other thing. And I'll go to church and be kind and like God and stuff. But number one thing in my life is to acquire. That desire to acquire is huge. How many people do we know who've been destroyed this way? Uh, It destroys your family. It destroys the body. It destroys your, your relationship with God. 
You know, as I as I look at ten, ten is a very interesting command. It's, it's, it's a it's a it's a huge shift here, because the top nine all deal with a, a, a physical manifestation. I mean, you know, if you killed somebody or not, you, you know, if you've got an idol that you bow down to or not, pretty obvious. But ten, God goes internal on ten. He takes it into an arena that nobody else may ever know about. Coveting. Follow me for a second. Because Colossians 3, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. First command. No gods before me. In the Old Testament, if you would have any gods before Yahweh, that was called what? Idolatry. We're back at the beginning. You know, we think that these are all this linear list, individual things. No, no, no. This is that, that Hebrew mindset. This is a wheel. And 10 gets us back to, to, to number one. But it rolls a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. This is why the issue is the heart is what God is saying. All of these things, these outward manifestations. But the real issue is the heart. That's why Jesus can say, you've heard that it said, don't don't murder anybody. I tell you, if you hate, you've heard that it was said, don't don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust, because the issue is the heart. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. One day, a man came to see Jesus, a rich young ruler, Matthew 19. Now, the man came up to Jesus and said, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Okay, he's a good Jewish boy. He knew the commandments, but he asked, well, which ones? Jesus gives him a list. Now, again, the first four are our relationship with God. Jesus starts in. He says, well, do not murder, which is number six, right? Do not commit adultery. That was seven. Do not steal. That's eight. Do not give false testimony. That's nine. Honor your father and mother. That's five. And then he surmises them. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus never mentions ten, does he? It's not there. Now, the rich young ruler would know it's not there. And so rich young ruler stops. He says, well, all these I've kept. And maybe on a surface level, he did. Maybe he's thinking, OK, I've never committed adultery. And I've never killed anybody. And, you know, honoring your parents. Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. And I'm a rich young ruler, so I didn't steal anything from anybody. So, yeah, I've kept all these. And so Jesus says, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I didn't mention 10, did I? Yeah, let me share it with you in a way maybe you're not used to hearing it. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions And give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Do you hear what Jesus is offering this guy? He's offering this guy to be the 13th apostle. You can come be a part of our band. The same plea he made to, to Matthew. This guy had an incredible opportunity. But he realized, with number nine... I guess my heart's not there. Now, there was another guy that, or excuse me, with number 10. There's another guy that came across number 10 as well, and it shifted his thinking. It was the Apostle Paul. Now, look what Paul says about himself before he was a believer. He says in Philippians 3, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He said, I was keeping the law. I was just like the rich young ruler. I have kept all of these. Until 
He lived a little closer on 10. Look what he says in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive from apart, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You, you see what he's saying here? That he thought that the, the commandments were giving me, me life, but, but he suddenly realized the primary purpose of the commandments. And this is, is, is key. If you have nothing else, just for the next couple of minutes, hang with me. Because the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments, primarily, is not for us to follow after, though we should. But according to Galatians, they were to lead us to Christ. When you stare and you look at the commandments and you really see what it's about, and especially number 10, you realize that your heart is wicked. You realize that you falter, you fail. It's, it's God, who can hang out with you? And God says, I want to have fellowship with you. Here are my standards up here. I want to have fellowship with you. Here they are, just 10 things. Keep them and we can fellowship together. First one is right. No gods before me. Now, if worshiping other gods is simply putting something ahead of God in your life, let me ask you all, don't, no show of hands here, but how many of you all have ever put something ahead of God in your life? Yeah, I think so. How many of you all, if, if it says that the name, uh, which is really uh, hypocrisy, claiming to follow Yahweh and living like you're not, how many of you all have ever been, yeah, I think we, we've, all, we've all been there. How many, as far, as far as time to regularly reflect on who he is with your mind and heart, have, have we ever violated that one? Yeah, we probably have violated that one. What about dishonoring parents? We're not going to go there right now. What about uh, hating somebody? Because Jesus said that's what murder is. Have we ever had unrighteous anger? Have you ever got to a point where you've thought things you shouldn't be thinking about someone else or, or a, an emotional affair going on? Have you ever said things about somebody that you really shouldn't say? The law's purpose it's for you and I to look at that and say, we want a relationship with God. He wants one with us. But his standard, we just can't reach. And even if I give everything I can, like Paul did, to try to reach it, I'm not going to do it. There was one person 2,000 years ago who did live them all perfectly. Didn't mess up at all. And matter of fact... Jesus then went to the cross. And while he was on the cross dying, he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he was doing, of course, is all those times I broke the law, he was taking the punishment for them on that cross. All the times Apostle Paul broke the law, he was taking the punishment for them on the cross. All the times you broke the law and will break the law, he was taking the punishment... Of, of, of that on the cross. And scripture says when you and I surrender our life to him, this is the amazing thing. Not only does he, by his blood on the cross, have taken the punishment for our breakage of the law. But the scripture says his keeping the law is attributed to us. So that you and I hit God's standard. We can have relationship with God. But only through Jesus. 
So let me ask you, maybe you've been coming to church just a short time. Maybe you've been coming your whole life and you're doing the Christian religious thing or you think you're a pretty good person or you're striving to keep some of the law some of the time. We should. But let me ask you, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Because when you, when you, when you get tired of trying to earn your way to him and you realize I can't keep his standard no matter how hard I try, You come to the foot of the cross and you say, thank you for living this for me because I just can't do it. Thank you for forgiving and dying for the punishment, for my breaking of it, because I broke it a lot. I want to surrender my life to you. Would you take it? Let me ask you, have you ever done that? I'm so grateful for the person way back when who shared that with me. I want to give you an opportunity if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, to do so now. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes, just right where you are. God is there with you. He knows it's why he gave the law, not so that you would be really good, but so you'd recognize how really good you're not. And that you'd recognize that only Jesus can meet that standard that God has set forth. And he met it. He did for you. So you can pray to him now and you can say, Lord, thank you that though the standard is beyond me, thank you for opening my eyes to see that. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the law perfectly for me and to die for all the times that I've broken. I do surrender my life to you. Through your spirit, may you help me to live it now. Lord, I believe that you're sovereign, that nobody is here by accident. God, I thank you that you are so different than so many of the other faiths out there, that you don't heap on us a big list of stuff we have to do to accomplish in order to be right with you. But you know that we can't, and so you've sent your Son to accomplish those things for us in our behalf. And God, through your Spirit, we do desire to please you and to live in a way that pleases you. But God, if there's anybody here this morning that maybe surrendered their life to you for the first time, would you remind them again and again and again? Would you remind each of us again and again and again? It's not about our striving, but about your grace. And would you help us, Lord, as we go forth into the worlds that you've called us into to be reminded on a regular basis of the forgiveness, constant forgiveness we have in Jesus. And there's no condemnation to those who are in you, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus took all the penalty because Jesus lived it all out. And we've had that attributed to us. So take us, I pray, God, keep us safe as we go especially spiritually. In the name of Christ, amen.